Hey, do you like movies? You do? Then I bet you're already very familiar with our friends over at Vinegar Syndrome. Vinegar Syndrome is one of the leading exploitation and grindhouse preservation and distribution companies in the world. The company was started by cinephiles Joe Rubin and Ryan Emerson and was said to be, quote, perhaps the most important home video label in the world of genre film by the Alamo Draft House. Holy shit, that is one hell of an endorsement. A big part of that is because of a three-step process I lovingly refer to as the three R's. Recover, restore, and release. Vinegar Syndrome has an expansive film archive of over 500 feature films, and they also work closely with archival institutions like the Museum of Modern Art, the Academy, yeah, MoMA, the Academy Film Archive, the Library of Congress, UCLA, and the Walker Center. I can't even count how many of their releases have either never gotten a physical release or haven't been seen since the days of VHS. Many of these films look better than they have any right to look. My favorite thing about Vinegar Syndrome is that they have their own in-house lab, which they use to restore these films to all of their glory. I can honestly say that I have never seen any grain reduction or digital trickery on their discs. Vinegar Syndrome was one of our first sponsors, and I'm overjoyed to say that they've stuck with us for five years. I'm still surprised we stuck around for five years, to be completely honest with you. uh, That we've stuck with each other. Yeah, I know. I really thought we'd be done after the first couple months in the first season. We're still keeping, baby! Yeah, we are. So check out their website today to pick up your copies of the Forgotten Jolly Collections 1, 2, and 3. Though one might be out of print, so if you see it, make sure you grab it. Satan's Blood, Fade to Black, a VHS favorite amongst a lot of cinephiles that was uh, unable to be released for a very long time. Taxi Girls, Don Coscarelli's Beastmaster, an HBO late night favorite. The 3D film Silent Madness, and the weirdo French Christmas horror film Dial Code Santa Claus, a.k.a. Deadly Game, and many, many more. Visit them today at VinegarSyndrome.com and let them know that the Shameless Picture Show sent you. That's right, VinegarSyndrome.com for all the cult, horror, exploitation, and vintage porn you could ever want. However much that may be. Yeah, exactly. And did you ever listen to that Orville Peck record I gave you? I did, finally. And what I did love you it, think? of course. I love it. It's amazing. I know, isn't it? Because, like, I, I remember I was thinking about it when you sent me that um, those two records by that group I can't think of the name of. At the uh, moment, Smooth Hound Smith. Yeah, and you're, you said, he's like, you're not usually a big fan of country or folk, but they kind of hit you in the right way. And that's how I felt with Orville Peck. I, yeah. At first, I saw his picture just pop up randomly because he was coming to Madison. And I was like, who is this guy? Have and, you heard- and then I decided okay. to put his music on, and I was like, holy shit, this guy's really fucking good. But my dad was a big fan of Waylon Jennings, mm-hmm. if you're familiar with him. And he does a song, uh, I Ain't Living Long Like This. Do you know the song? I don't think I've heard that one. So anyways, he did a cover of that song. And to see a, uh, a, a literal sea of gay punk country youth <laughs> moshing to that song it it brought like a tear to my eye <laughs> oh so beautiful because like they're like you know you you see punk vests and rhinestones and short shorts and <laughs> cowboy boots pink hats and they're all just moshing and into, into a sweaty sea and like 
I think the gays just took over country. I'm all <laughs> for think, it. I think this is the best part of America right there. Right, right, right here in Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> so, yeah, that was that was a great moment for me. Awesome. $25 and, well spent. And a pretty great segue into our yeah. film today. Exactly. It all worked out. Orville <laughs> Peck is for everyone. <laughs> Anyways, I'm going to take a coffee, sip of coffee for the working man out of my... My bear mug. Uh, today, I am a caffeine queen. I like it. It's like dancing queen, but you know, right. a little less catchy. I feel the tea in my tummy. <laughs> and you think you are the musician. Warning! This movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements. Endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. Hello and welcome to the season six premiere of The Shameless Picture Show. I am Michael Byers and with me, as always, is a man who's going to Las Copa with nothing but his toothbrush. <laughs> Nick Richards. How Egyptian. <laughs> I'm traveling light. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many good lines in this movie. Before we get to the topic of today's episode, Nick and I would like to mention a couple notable deaths from the last couple weeks. There were a lot of them. <laughs> Dropping light flies. Recently... We've lost America's golden girl herself, Betty White. And real quick, I do got to mention, I do find it, I find it funny. I'm going to just say funny. I find it <laughs> funny. So she passed away, unfortunately, at the age of 99. But, you know, they were planning this big 100th birthday celebration <laughs> in theaters. They have all these newspapers out for her 100th birthday. And a friend of mine online said, he's like, you know what? My parents always did tell me it was, it was, uh, it was not cool to celebrate your birthday before your birthday. <laughs> but at the same time, I also think it's a very Betty White thing to like, it feels like a big troll. Yes, like you have yep. all these people celebrating your 100th birthday and you're like, peace. She is up there with a big smile on her face and a big slice of cheesecake. Don't look at these fuckers. I know. So we lost America's golden girl herself, Betty White. By the time I got to high school, the kids had made up this really mean nickname for me just because I had hairy legs. What'd they call you? Rose with the hairy legs. <laughs> we lost filmmaker and film historian Peter Bogdanovich. Um, he's made a lot of movies. Um, I don't even want to say most notable because like, I feel like a lot of his films are pretty well noted and known, but The Last Picture Show seems to be one that a lot of people are familiar with. And honestly, other than his movie Mask about Rocky Dennison, I don't think I've seen any of his movies. So I want to do something for him this season. Yes, that's that's will be a great tribute. And then recently we also lost Sidney Poitier. Yes, yeah. I think I'd better go and put it away. And uh, so we've not figured out exactly what the plan is yet, but we do plan to try to tackle a film or show from each one of these titans of entertainment. I know there's a lot on uh, Poitier's uh, uh, filmography that I've not seen. Uh, same, same here. And actually, right now, some theaters locally are doing. They're for five bucks. You can go see In the Heat of the Night right now. Oh, at, awesome! At a theater. It's like I've never seen it. Yeah, so it's like, on my same list as well. 
be a great way to go see it. Well, hopefully, uh, I don't know if I'll be able to make it, but it's still pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, by the time people are listening to this, that's long past. <laughs> <laughs> so, without further ado, on today's episode, Nick and I will be tackling the Mike Nichols hit film, The Birdcage. Armand Goldman and his life partner Albert own, operate, and perform at the popular South Beach drag club called The Birdcage and live above the club with their housekeeper, Agador. Armand runs the daily operations of the club while Albert performs as the star attraction, Starina. Armand has a son named Val, who was conceived after a drunken one-night stand with a woman named Catherine. Armand and Albert raised Val, and Val is returning home to tell Armand that he's getting married to a woman named Barbara. Issue? Armand feels Val is far too young to get married. Oh, and Barbara's father is a conservative Republican senator who runs a group called the Coalition for Moral Order. <laughs> Barbara and Val want their parents to meet. But Val feels his two dads are far too much for a Republican senator to handle. So he asks them to pretend to be something they're not. Straight. <laughs> the Birdcage, which is a remake of the French play by Jean Porret, La Cage aux Four, which translates to... I believe, The Cage of Crazy Women, which was also made into a French movie by Edouard Mol- Molinero. Edouard Molinero. Which the film could be looked... The film could be looked at as in... Sev- in oh, let me just scratch that. The film could be looked at as insensitive when viewed through a 2022 lens with Robin Williams, a seemingly straight man playing the gay lead, and Hank Azaria, a seemingly straight white male playing an Ecuadorian gay houseboy. The film was met with a lot of positive reviews in 1996 and was a commercial hit, keeping its number one film in America status for three weeks. It was also praised by the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation for and this is their exact quote, going beyond the stereotypes to see the character's depth and humanity. The film celebrates difference and points out the outrageousness of hiding those differences. It was also nominated for a slew of prestigious awards, most notably the Blockbuster Entertainment Awards. No. (laughs) No. They were nominated for Oscars. Glad actually nominated them for some awards. I believe it took home a Golden Globe or two. Um, I just wanted to poke fun at Blockbuster. (laughs) The film was written by Elaine May. Both music by Jonathan Tunick and cinematography by Emmanuel Lubetsky, who shot like um, Birdman and uh, that fucking crazy bear movie that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio was in. What is that called? Oh, Um, The Revenant? The Revenant, yeah. So this was an early American film for Lubetsky, because I believe he was shooting in other countries before that. The film film stars Robin Williams, Nathan Lane, Diane Wiest, Gene Hackman, Dan Futterman, Kalista Flockhart, and Hank Azaria as Egador from 1996. Directed by Mike Nichols, this is Birdcage. Pop, I'm getting married. (laughs) It's a girl. I I met her at school. It's this wonderful... uh, what, What are you... Are you upset? But let me tell you why. Don't use that tone to me. What tone? That sarcastic, contemptuous tone that means you know everything because you're a man and I know nothing because I'm a woman. You're not a woman. Oh, you bastard. Are you crazy? You can't get married. It's out of the question. We've been sleeping together for a year. Oh, God. Has he been tested? Oh, Kevin. Yes, and so have I. 
Uh, who's his father? His father is in the arts. You do an eclectic celebration of the dance. You do Fosse, Fosse, Fosse. You do Martha Graham, Martha Graham, Martha Graham. You know, Madonna, Madonna, Madonna. But you keep it all inside. What does the mother do? She's a housewife. Oh, I could play it straight. You take your knife and you smear. Men smear. Smear, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Get the pinky <laughs> down. So I hold the knife boldly in yes. strength. <laughs> I'm gonna like pierce the toast. <laughs> Al, you old so-and-so. How do you feel about that call today? I mean, the Dolphins. Fourth and three play on their 30-yard line with only 34 seconds to go. How do you think I feel? Betrayed? Bewildered? Call me. Perfect. Won't you come in? Senator Keeley, Mrs. Keeley, come here and give me a hug. Oh! I've never felt such tension. It's like riding a psychotic horse towards a burning stable. Oh God, it's a nightmare. Get up, everybody, and oh, Something about the father and the skull. I can't put my finger on it's it. It's nothing. What do you mean? It's nothing. It is Dad, something. It is nothing. Something very strange is going on. Funny enough, I think this movie was my first introduction to who Bob Fosse was. Oh, okay. Now, was this on your shame list also, or have no, you? No, I seen grew this? up with this movie. Okay, this oh, was I've my seen... first time. Yeah, I've se- um, I, uh, my mom loves this movie. Okay, and it was a movie that we watched quite frequently as a kid. So when I, you mentioned that you wanted to um, to 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 do it for the show, I had already plans to go hang out with my mom. I was like, "Well, we need something to watch. Let's watch the Bird King." Awesome, cool. <laughs> yeah, I so like. We, we had my mom involved. She had a great time. <laughs> Many times we're finding. Um, I think more than we were in the beginning, we're finding movies that either like that both of us haven't seen versus mm-hmm. one that one of us has seen and the other one hasn't. So I'm glad to be returning to this dynamic for this episode. Yeah, me too. So, and I have not seen the original film that it's based on um, or the play. Um, uh, I'm like, gonna do uh, probably slightly more accurate, but still very off attempt at the pronunciation of. Uh, La Cage Falls. Is it Falls? Okay. Yeah, and I think it might translate to Birdcage. Um, I don't know. From I, I When I Googled it, it says the cage of crazy women. So okay. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. It could be like a double entendre. I asked, my, I asked uh, our former house guest, uh, Emma, um, what she, she's fluent in French or pretty okay. close to. It's uh, like... Uh, her nickname is Dusty. He's like, Dusty, what does blank translate to? And she says, Cage of Crazies? So maybe <laughs> okay. a combination of all of them. Yeah. But it, other languages are interesting because context does matter into translation. Totally. So, totally. So, like, you know, things aren't always as literal as they are here. Yeah. You know, that title on this movie could mean something slightly different than it could just in the wild. Or maybe mm-hmm. I'm just making that up. I don't know. It sounded good. I buy it. You convinced me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Nick, what did you think of this movie? What did I think? I, um, it is you not. You saw it twice, I, so you either liked it or you rage watched it. Uh, while one of those is true and one of those is false, the reason why I watched it again was more that I, 
the first time I watched it, I wasn't watching with the intent of talking about it on the show. It wasn't mm. until afterwards. Mm-hmm. So, and it was deep enough of a movie that I wanted to make sure that I went through it watching it with that intent versus just like, you know, lighter movies you can kind of watch and go, okay, yeah, I could talk about that, but yeah. I wanted to Like pull. you're the hunter from the future. I have pages and pages of notes. Awesome. I'm just going off of my memory. <laughs> nice. Again, sorry for my coughs and my... I'll cut some of those voices. Or maybe I won't. I don't know. Oh, we'll just, or maybe we'll auto-tune them and turn it oh, into oh, a... I don't know how to auto-tune, but I do know some guys who do. Now I want to auto-tune you saying you don't know how to auto-tune. Don't know how to auto-tune. <laughs> but that will sound actually better than auto-tune. So, so uh, of the two things that you said, uh, I did really enjoy the movie. Um, it was interesting watching it for the first time through our modern context of... Um, of homosexuality being more in the in our social consciousness, you know, um, versus ninety five or ninety six, I think when this came out, uh, yeah. I'm sure it had a very different context. And then that's that's even more true for the original that it's based on, being in the seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's it's interesting that my viewing of it for the first time today kind of adds another viewing lens i was a little worried returning to this film because it was a film that i grew up with i had very fond memories of um uh, it was a movie that my 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 mother also loved and um but i was a little worried going back to it after so much time sure it's been I, definitely a couple years watching I can it imagine. and it's like okay i'm definitely uh uh a more knowledgeable person than yeah. they used to be. <laughs> and I was like, okay, the things I was worried about, I was like, okay, Robin Williams playing a playing a gay, gay male, but then playing against Nathan Lane, who has to play, the, who, who's playing the more stereotypical character. Granted, yeah. it's a character he's very well known for playing, but still, I was like, okay, you have Robin Williams, the straight man, playing the more butch of the two characters. And then, like... Like the whole the entire thing with Hank Azaria playing the character he is playing is 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 problematic. It is. Yep. It, he. They never. I. I don't know. I don't feel like they're ever really making fun. It doesn't feel like like Charlie Chan yellow face type of humor. Like it feels like he's legitimately trying to play this character and play it play it well and not necessarily poke fun at. Um, the race aspects of it, but it's still very problematic performance. Yeah. And Hank Azaria has talked about recently he, that he's come around and and I not that I ever noticed him strongly defending roles like that prior to this, but he has been fairly candid about um, the fact that he has not always felt the way that he does today about it, and yeah. has he come realizes around him. Yeah, he realizes him playing a poo on The Simpsons is not cool. Right. Yep. So he refu- he won't do it anymore. Yep. Um, which is good. Good on him. Um, we're all learning. <laughs> yeah, we're all we're all learning. And like this film, but what I will say for like in 1996, this film was 
far more progressive than it probably is viewed today. And actually, one thing I was talking to my friend uh, Nico about, but he said, if you think about 1996... Is like the fact that this film was a hit. It made money. It <clears throat> so you know it was number one film in America, and it made money. So it's a hit. Yeah. Um, about two gay about 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 two gay men who are proud of who they are. Because he said, you know, he's like in '96, you didn't get many movies that starred uh, that were about gay characters who weren't dying or sick right. or you know. So he's like, like here's, Philadelphia here's about, came out right around the same time. Yeah, he's like, here's a movie you have about to about being proud of who you are and not feeling like you have to hide. So I was like, fuck, that's a good fucking point. While while as we've already said, there are problematic elements to the film. I actually was surprised with how modern it felt to me. Yeah, um, like it, it didn't feel like caricatures. Yeah, necessarily. Like I said. Agador's character kind of rides that line a little bit, but I, I feel like it's 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 less making fun of him being a minority and more how is this character in, interacting with the world around him? Like, yeah. you know, him not being able to walk walk in shoes has nothing to do with him being from Ecuador. That's just that character, right? If we take out the element of Hank Azaria, a uh, white straight man playing uh, this character, if we separate that from the argument for a second, we just think about that role. I think that role in a otherwise heterosexual heterosexual film is far more problematic because that is the like singular representation of of a gay person in the film. Then then that's a problem. But in the context of other gay roles in the film, it felt a bit more as a representation of an individual than a stereotype. Yeah, yeah, because like they all they all have their own personality and their own desires. And... Yeah. Yeah. I get that. So for whatever that's worth. And again, you know, I'm I'm coming to this as as somebody who has not lived that experience yeah, so it, yeah. it is an outsider's opinion and and so take it for what it's worth everything that i say in this episode should be i hope treated as the uh, opinion of an outsider trying to understand this film's place in the world yeah and also please like if we are saying something stupid, please reach out to let yeah. us know. I love hearing when I make an ass of myself. Cause, cause it gives me an actually, opportunity to correct it. Because I, like I told uh, uh, my friend Nico that we were going to be doing this 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 episode, and uh, I told him that I was I was like worried about rewatching the movie, and I told him the reasons why. And Nico, who is a a, a, a gay male, told me all the reasons why. He thinks this movie is a good representation, but that's just because he feels that way doesn't mean someone else will. Like that's that's discourse. That's part of how the world runs. Like, you know, one person can think something is perfectly fine, and someone else can think you know it's offensive. There is no right or wrong. Yeah, I read a few articles on it after I watched rewatched the film today. I just wanted to get some other outside opinions on this film in a broader societal context. But I was seeing a lot of people responding to things as like, 
the gay community doesn't have an opinion on this film. I, as a gay person in that community, have an opinion on this film. Yeah. And that's going to be different than this other person's opinion on the film. And, like, remember, we're not a, a monolith of a singular opinion. Um, but I did. I saw a lot of... I, I, my gut instinct when I first watched the film was that this was a pretty positive representation overall. Mm-hmm. It showed dynamics that are not in most even uh, gay films that I've seen. You know, if you mm-hmm. want to, if you want to consider that a genre, mm-hmm. um, um, and and I saw problematic aspects, but overall, it it felt positive to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more I read, the more I got some clarification on what those positive parts were um, that I really appreciated reading up on. And uh, maybe I can pull up some of those links and we can throw that in the description as some reading resources. I was looking at trivia on IMDb and obviously take everything from IMDb as a from a grain <laughs> of salt. Uh, but I was uh, – one, it said that Hank Azaria realized after filming that he had actually – Based his voice on his grandmother's, which, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, um, just a couple other like goofy little things that I, I just, I found, uh, amusing. Um, uh, apparently Robin Williams was originally cast as the role of Albert, but he wanted to change from, from flamboyant characters and asked to be cast as Armand. Uh, oh yeah. I like that even more that that came from Robin Williams. Yeah. Um, another another goofy one is uh, Pink, apparently Hank Azaria created two different voices for the character of Agador Spartacus. One being somewhat of a, a more masculine voice and the other being higher pitched. He was worried that, about the second one being too stereotypical until he asked a gay friend of his at, who thought it was more realistic. Okay. Um, Apparently, the director, Mike Nichols, had to be covered by a sound blanket during the toast sequence because he was laughing too loud. <laughs> um, and then uh, director Paul Thomas Anderson, who just made the film last year, Licorice Pizza, yeah. has said that this movie is one of the two films that, without fail or question, will make me stop dead in my tracks and watch all the way to the very end, no matter what else is happening or needs to get done. The other film is Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. <laughs> <laughs> So both the same type of experience. <laughs> yeah, and I actually I didn't know this. This is interesting. Once again, I would need to. Um, I, I once again I'm just reading those off of IMDb. Don't know how much of this is true. Um, while uh, Nathan Lane, while his character in the film is openly gay, had not come out at the time of the film's release. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. No, I. I think the thing that shocked me the most from my expectations was Robin Williams performance because a lot subtle like it was it was not not subtle Robin Williams is he can be subtle but like this is not necessarily him being subtle this is him being unexpected subdued too like he he wasn't doing you know if Nicolas Cage is known for his cage rage you know (laughs) Robin Williams definitely has his like big zaniness there's very little of that in this movie what what I remember of like the trailer for this or, or any any experience I had as a child prior to watching it um, as an adult 
is Robin Williams doing the Madonna, Madonna, Fosse, Fosse, that bit mm-hmm. where he's where he's directing the the drive. It's the most Robin Williams part of this it, film. Exactly. So I was very worried because that's what I thought I was going into. Mm-hmm. And I was ready to be offended by it. Do you have any special skills? Oh, yes. I do. I, I do voices. What do you mean, you do voices? Well, I do voices. Yes! We've come to this planet looking for intelligent life. Oops, we made a mistake. We're happy to be in America. Don't ask for a green card. <laughs> I want you in the worst way. Well, it's certainly a rough meeting, and it's not going very well for me, I'll tell you that. Hey, boss, give it a change. She's going to loosen up any moment. <laughs> Look at me right now, money penny. I want to undo that bow and get to know you. I'm crazy to make a deal with you. Nancy and I are still looking for the other half of my head. She's <laughs> idiot. She's doing it. I'm sitting on a gold mine. Don't make me smack you, sweetheart. I'll do it. I do a great impression of a hot dog. <laughs> I imagine Nick sitting there and be like, oh, I'm ready to be here. We, here we go. <laughs> um, but it wasn't. Like, that was such a tiny part of it and was almost his character, like, breaking into Zany for a second to make a point that it, that was not his personality at all. Mm-hmm. And so it was really refreshing to see his performance, how how seriously he took it, how, I, you know, I, I don't know what Robin Williams would orient himself as today if he's just... Yeah, that's why I said seemingly. But but I would use the word. I think he had an authentic performance. Mm -hmm. So even though he is not necessarily to to the best of my knowledge is not a gay man, he made that like he found the humanity in it in a way that um, was felt deserving to me. Yeah, he didn't play it at least not to my feeling as a stereotype yeah you know but yet he also didn't because i feel like um you know he very could have easily just played it like as any other robin williams role and then he, then he would just feel like a character who just happens to be gay and he wouldn't feel like true to that character like i feel like he found a right balance for this character yeah yeah you know because it's like I've seen I I I can't recall any at the moment, but I'm, I feel like I've seen movies where there's a person playing a gay character who just plays it like a straight character, and not nece- and I don't even know how I'm trying to say this correctly. Well, I, um, I I think what you're trying to say, I think Philadelphia would actually be um, a a bit more of a place for that description that you're trying to th- put up as a contrast of the like. He was a gay man trying to fit in in a straight man's world and mm-hmm. and hide who he was in that professional setting. Yes, um, that is not what Robin Williams or Nathan Lane's characters are doing here. No, and if anything, the, you know, the, the, the movie is about how hard it is to pretend to be something you aren't. Yep, yep. When you edit that, make that sound better, Nick. <laughs> uh, so. Um, one of the things I was reading in those articles as a positive is that the, I guess, three lead gay roles, that being Albert, um, uh, Armand, and 
Spartacus. Uh, Agador. <laughs> Agador. They all start with A's. Uh, it makes it very confusing. They do, don't they? Fuck. All three of them never apologize for who they are. They're always comfortable with who they are. And the reason why both of them, or all three of them, are willing to change is to help somebody that they love who is in a situation outside of his control. Mm -hmm. And I think they do a really good job of showing that pull between them. But at the end of the day, they're like, we love you. We want you to be able to marry this person you love. And if it means doing this thing that I've done before when you were a kid, I will do it again to try and help get us through this. Yeah. It was a decision that they made. They were in control of it. They were they were the ones deciding it was happening. It wasn't being done to them. And even though I think, in my opinion, Val is the villain of this for asking them to do all of that. He's worse than Vader. Right? He um, is fucking Death Star level villain in this movie. Um, outside of that, I think that gave those characters power and and a space to explore these things. I thought it was really interesting when Val brought up um, Armand's uh, comment to him when he started school of, like, if your teacher asks what your dad does, tell him he's in sales or a businessman or something. It was, mm-hmm. um, it was this really subtle personal moment that said so much and it didn't exa- it didn't contrast how they were acting nowadays there was truth in it that continued to that day and why they were willing to put on this big act uh for val's sake um my i think the best line in the whole movie is and it's 100 percent because of the way that robin williams delivers it uh it's after val thanks him for being willing to go along with it. And he goes, it's probably best you don't talk to me a lot right now. And it was said with love. And it was mm-hmm. said, like, you're you're my world and you're why I'm doing this. But you have no idea how big the thing you asked me to do is. And mm-hmm. I am going to do my best to get through it. But you need to give me some space. I thought yeah. it was so powerful. There's so I, much truth I, to that line. Yeah. Like, it, it made me cry, that line. It was... And, just, and the way that it was delivered too, like because yep. like there's there's so many opportunities for that line to not work. Yeah, for him to come off as an asshole for like attacking Val for what you know, um, but it was it was said with such love and such weight that it was it was so good <laughs> and a real testament to Robin Williams' acting ability. Mm-hmm. But that also like. I, I feel like one one thing that like I I was really just amazed by rewatching this movie because like when I was when I used to watch this movie as a kid, it always stuck with me because of like how funny it was you know obviously, yeah. um, and I just real quick I just need to mention like it's one of my funniest little visual gags in this film that I pointed out to my mom and she's like all the times I've watched this I've never noticed it. They have that line to Agador. They're like, put something straight looking on. And the next time you see him, he's wearing a crop top that just says straight looking. <laughs> and they never draw attention to it. I, I, I noticed the shirt, but I never connected it to the line. <laughs> That's amazing. 
<laughs> and they, I love that they never draw attention to it. But I, th- I think part of w- what works so well in this film is Robin Williams has a lot of he has a lot of phenomenal actors to work with because him and Nathan Lane have so much fucking chemistry. Yes, in this yeah. in this film. Because if 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 anyone else like if if Nathan Lane would have been acting along with someone else who wasn't feeling it with or Rob Williams or someone else who he, he wasn't feeling it with this movie wouldn't have worked but I yes. never once doubted that these two were a couple that these two uh, and, were legitimate and a couple that have been together for decades and the reason it works too is because so some of the things that they say to each other is just downright mean and nasty but they deliver it in such a way that you never think that they're legitimate like they're be, that they're being assholes to right, each other. Right. This is just how two couples who have spent a lot of uh, uh, two people who are a couple who spent, who spent a lot of time with each other talk to each other. And, and I think a lot of those lines also were expressing personal vul- um, feelings of being vulnerable or being taken for granted or or feel, like the subtext of mm-hmm. the lines that they delivered to each other. I thought was there yeah. was so much there. And like Nathan Lane, I don't think gets enough credit for his performance in this film. Like he, he's definitely where a lot of the humor lives, but also like the fact that he can, he has these dizzying highs and these 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 remarkable lows where he can, you know, be the big over the top Nathan Lane that we've we've seen in a lot of things since then. But then he can also be very real and practical, and and then find every beat in between, and sometimes do all these in one scene, and yeah. it never feels false. And, like, well, I, one of the scenes that really just hit me was when, when Nathan Lane, when he's, because he's really trying in this film. Albert's really trying. Um, and he comes in wearing that tuxedo, oh. and, and like, the way he delivers that entire scene, oh. where when he, when he eventually goes, he's like, I'm more obvious wearing this, aren't I? Yeah. And... He's trying so hard, and then you know I think Robin Williams says, "What about the socks?" And he's just like, "I had to add a little bit of color." Like he just he's trying so hard, and that scene is just gut wrenching to me. What I love is that so, um, her character or their character, you know, again, pronouns are a relatively new thing to me, and I they would say my wife, mm-hmm. but they would also use the pronouns he. So I'll probably be bouncing in and out with with the pronouns for Albert. Um, she's portrayed as being like dramatic, emotion mm-hmm. over the top, emotionally and hard to deal with, right? Mm-hmm. And we've seen that character. We've seen that character a billion times. I have never seen that character be true to being overly dramatic and emotional and hard to deal with. But every single line, I felt for her. Like mm-hmm. I felt for Albert every time. A, a line was delivered out of Nathan Lane's m- mouth. I'm like, oh my god, let me give you a hug. It was like she she meant those lines as the character. He he as the actor. Um, he meant every single one of those lines. So it was dramatic, but it was also real. And I've never seen that before. Mm-hmm. And like in, in stark contrast, like. Amanda and I just recently rewatched uh, Adam Sandler's *The Wedding Singer*. Okay, and it's a movie I always enjoyed, but like watching it this time and like the treatment of Alexis Arquette's character in that film was just being you know the boy George joke throughout right? the film, and yep. it's and it just really like uh, bothered me. 
Yeah. Um, and then to see like how just as over the top flamboyant characters were treated in this, and just like oh, the you know the characters are funny and are making jokes, but the joke's not on who they are. Right. Whereas in the wedding singer, the joke is, oh look, you know. Alexis Arquette is a you know looks like Boy George. How weird is that? Like yeah. the the jokes in this are against the Republicans. Yeah. Like all of them, all the jokes are set up to the 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 Republican conservative, the the moral order of moose antlers or whatever the fuck it is. Mm-hmm. Um, like they are the butts of these jokes. Never. Them never homosexuality, never drag, never any of that, and I think that's really be- even take the ending. So take when when Gene Hackman, this conservative vice president of this moral order, is you can't be Jewish, is right, right. But they dress him in drag in order to escape the media. Which also had he gotten caught, I want to see the ending where he gets caught escaping in drag, and that's the media attention. Um, but I'm glad it went this way for many reasons. But, like, him reacting in that wasn't, oh, my God, I'm so disgusted that I have to dress like a woman. It was, please don't make me be the only person, like, not being danced with. He was, I, oh, my God, that, that was, was one of my favorite lines. He's like, why does no one want to dance with me? Yeah, it, was, it wasn't, he was never disgusted by it. Yeah. He wasn't like, oh, my God, I'm so uncomfortable. He was feeling very vulnerable in that scene. Um also, Diane Weist in drag. Holy shit, she looks amazing. <laughs> I guess, is it drag? I guess, no, no not really. Um, no, it's, it's funny, like, Gene Hackman's entire, like, see, like when, when he finds out that who Albert really is, and his utter confusion, I, I also appreciate the way that that, that moment was he, handled. because he, he never said gross, he never said, oh my god, it was just like... It's just like, what? what? <laughs> I don't... I don't understand what's happening. Like, it, I imagine it'd be very similar to, like, if my, if my dad was still around, like, his react, like, if I, if I were to try to explain some of these things to him, it, he'd just be like, wait, what? But, huh? Uh, okay. Wait. So. You're Jewish. <laughs> it was so good. Even in that moment, they could have said, like, we need this character to be grossed out by this so that he's clearly the villain, and they didn't do that. Like yeah, even that, even that character, they they wrote in a way so that it wasn't him of like being disgusted by their lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was all how they treated it. I I'm not gonna say right or wrong because I'm not the one who decides those things. But it was all very interesting. Yeah, one hundred percent and. Like, it was also really funny, too, because you talk about Diane Weist, where it very much felt like Diane, Diane Weist was, like, the brains of this operation, because, like, Gene Hackman's character was just like, where's my candy? What's going on? The green hills, the purple mountains. <laughs> it was so brilliantly boring. It was just, like, <laughs> color landscape. Color landscape over yep. and over again. Oh my god! Oh, my, if I if I have a complaint really about this film, and I, I feel like I I honestly feel like the character of Barbara is very underdeveloped. She's just kind of exists. Yeah, she's a um, MacGuffin. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, and she just and and also just and this is. The character of Val, we both said, is the absolute villain of this film. We can talk about that. But he 
in himself is also very underdeveloped. So all he has going for him is that he's a terrible person. Yeah. But I, while I agree with you that they're underdeveloped and I would support them being more developed, I don't mind it because for me, the story isn't about them. Mm-hmm. And I, I like that them being underdeveloped keeps the focus on Robin Williams and Nathan Lane. Mm-hmm. And because I think that like that's the heart of this movie and everything else is about how the two of them are processing these life events that they're going through. So mm-hmm. that one I'm okay with. Yeah, um, I'm just commenting there. Yeah. No, I was actually trying to look up to see what had come out around that time. Because okay. I'm just kind of curious about, curious about 1996 in film. And, like, Mike Nichols himself has, has had a weird, I don't want to say weird career, but it's just, um, I'm just surprised that he's the one who directed this film. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. having done The Graduate and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and... It just like I don't know. I guess I I also was really happy to see that um, Elaine May what had written this film or at least written this adaptation of it. Oh, okay. Because she's a really interesting figure in Hollywood. Where she she came up in filmmaking right around the time of all the other movie brats. If you remember, like if you if you're familiar with that time period. Um, where like that's where like De Palma and Scorsese and oh okay. And, um, Steven Spielberg were yep. coming up and she was originally like doing writing and um uh, and I believe acting even as well and I believe she was in a comedy team with Mike Nichols. I don't know if they were ever together, oh. but they were uh, a comedy team together. Um and yeah, she, and then she she started directing. She did films like uh, uh, the new a new leaf and uh, a crime drama called Mickey and Nikki, and then she eventually started getting involved with uh, Warren Beatty in making films, writing some of his and directing some. But because of the fucking cruel fate that is Hollywood, she directed a film called Ishtar from 1987, which stars Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty. She wrote and directed it. Huge fucking flop, and she pretty much never directed again. Oh. I recognize the name of the film, but I haven't seen it. I actually think the movie's hysterical. But okay, that's, <laughs> but that's just me. But no, it's just it's it. I, I I was so happy to see her name on, on the film because she's a figure I really like, oh, cool. and I always think it just sucks. Like you know, a male director has a flop. Oh, you're good to go again. Yeah. Uh, you know, a, a female director has a flop. Well, you're never directing again. Right. So why why do you let us let you direct? You clearly can't handle it. <laughs> kind yeah, of bullshit. exactly. So let's see. I'm I, I've got 1996 in film pulled up. Let's see what, what came around the birdcage. I'm just curious because it was such a big hit. Okay. And I'm excited to see like what came around. So it, this movie came out in it came out March 8th of 1996. That same week. So the week before, Down Periscope and Up Close, Close and Personal came out. Nothing really of note there. Um, but then the week it came out, it came out against Fargo. Oh. One of the Hellraiser sequels. Homeward Bound 2, Lost in <laughs> San Francisco. One for the titties. Yeah. And uh, uh, another movie I hadn't heard of. So, like, it's... it's it's Yeah. Like, I, I, I don't want to say it didn't have a whole lot of competition, but... 
I'm just so happy to see that this film did so well because it's not a movie that I was expecting to be a hit in 96. Like even when I, you know, I, I grew up, I, I grew up loving the film, um, but I didn't care about how films did at that point. Yeah. Um, and I just kind of figured, you know, oh, it was probably a movie that did well in video or some shit. So I'm, I'm so happy to hear that it was a hit. You know? Yeah. I feel like. And I could be wrong about this, certainly, but I feel like it was, it's just a kind of, it, it had very much to do with Robin Williams' star power at the time. Because mm-hmm, this was, a, this was like, Nathan Lane was doing Broadway at this point. He, yeah. This was a, like a breakout role for him. He was in uh, uh, Joe versus the Volcano and Frankie and Johnny um, and Adam's Family Values. And then he had done The Lion King, but, like, this was his, like, first starring role. Yeah. And then right after that, he followed this up with Mouse Hunt. <laughs> As one does. And the voice of Snowball, Snowbell in Stuart Whittle. Should we talk about the Val situation? The Val, about him being the villain? Yeah. I mean, I'll talk about it some more, but I'm basically just going to call him an asshole over and over again. <laughs> like, that's honestly, like... <sighs> So, like, when I was a kid, I never thought about anything about it, like... Um, sure, yeah. But, like, as an adult, like, it just frustrated me so much. It's like, you are more of a villain than Gene Hackman's character. <laughs> Gene Hackman's a fucking dope. But, like, <laughs> you asking your father and uh, and, and, his, and your father's life partner... And actually, originally, you didn't want Albert around. Right. Like, Can you send Albert yeah. away? And Robin Williams is like, he's like, do you know how difficult that will be? Yeah. Like Robin Williams already anticipating like this is not going to be an easy conversation, and then like m- trying to get I don't remember if it was Robin Williams' idea or if it was Val's, but then trying to get his birth mother involved, and it's just like all these uncomfortable situations he's making his father go into, and then ultimately I just kept asking, "Is like what is your plan, Val? Right? You can hide who they are for this one time, <laughs> but like." This is and not going to be the only time pretend, they're going to see each right, other. Yeah. And then, like, are you just going to not invite Albert to the wedding? Like, <laughs> he was—he raised you along with Armin. Like, what is your plan? Yeah. And I, I think that what we're describing is villainous. I think the reason why it, it still plays in a workable way is because of Robin Williams' acting. I think the way that he treats his relationship with his son completely brings me along through the entirety of the film. Whereas if that were treated a different way, I might be kind of done with it. What what I at least appreciate, what I at least appreciate is that Robin Williams in, in no point in Robin Williams performance, does he not, he always pretty much tells him, this is a big thing you're asking. Him. Yeah. Yep. He's never like, oh, yeah, that's easy. I'll sure, let's do, do it. that. No, and every then, you know, time. Like another... From that first conversation where he's like, how how dare you? I'm not going to be somebody that I am not. It took me 20 years to figure this out, and I'm not going back. Like a lesser movie could have very easily been like, yeah, we can do that. And then, uh-oh, we suck at this. And that right. could have been the humor. Like he, he told him very beginning on, it's like, I don't want to do this. Yeah. I don't know. I don't feel comfortable doing this. And then also to uh, another extent, I don't know if I can do this. He obviously has he he had more experience with it than Albert, and that's which is why he was kind of coaching him on it. But like, I I, I think it might have been Val who said like it was like right before the party was about to begin, and Rob Williams in his tuxedo, and he's like, 
Hey, he said to he said to Armand, he's like he's like when you're talking, try not. To, uh, he's like, oh, try to walk as little as possible. So like here you have Robin Williams who's supposed to be who's trying to teach Albert how to play straight, and even he can't do it that well. Right, right. And I I liked how they kind of treated acting straight in the same way that they treated the drag, mm-hmm. where it's this performance that they're doing. So they're not changing. They're putting on a show for somebody. And again, it kept the control of the situation in their hands. It made them in charge, which I Mm -hmm. think made a big difference in portraying this otherwise what could be a problematic portrayal. Yeah, and I also appreciate that they were playing off of straight stereotypes, too. Yep, absolutely. You know, the like, purple mountains. How my my favorite is like, how about them dolphins? <laughs> right, eh, John Wayne. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I, I absolutely love that line. He's like, no good. And he's like, no, I just didn't. And he's like, no, it's perfect. I just didn't realize John Wayne walked like that. <laughs> yes, it's so good. <laughs> it's oh. so good. Oh, another piece of trivia I was reading, and this makes complete sense because this is usually how it's done. But I, both Nathan Lane and Rob Williams were so, so well known for for improv. That um, uh, Mike Nichols essentially had to tell them, it's like, okay, I'm fine if you guys improv, but we have to have one good take with it <laughs> as written yep. before we can do any. <laughs> he needs to Give have one that for safety. You all can play to your heart's content. <laughs> yep. But no, I was I was really happy with the way that you know, like the way that this movie aged. What genre would you consider this film? Um. <clears throat> I feel like it would it would are are we do I have to pick one or can it be like hybrid? It can be hybrid. Yeah, I'll I'll say it can be hybrid. I would say comedy drama. Okay. But I would see I would lean I so my personal belief is whenever you do a hybrid genre like comedy horror or horror comedy, the first one you choose is the forward it's like that, know, that's, that's the forward flavor yep, and then okay. the secondary one is like What's underneath? So, so then I would say you this said is a comedy drama. Drama, okay. And I've seen, I'm often seen it described as a comedy, and I think I went into it expecting a comedy, and what I walked away with was total drama mm-hmm. that had very funny moments in it. But I think it's the reason why I liked it so much is it was because it was such a serious drama that was very joyous. Mm-hmm. Um. But that's what I wasn't expecting that made me walk away loving it as much as I did. Yeah, and it's those it's those added it's it's all that added drama to it that I think this makes this movie so good cuz like you could have, you know, you could have had, you know, this same movie without that and it probably would still be really funny. I just don't think it'd be nearly as memorable. Yeah. Yeah. Cuz it's not like the jokes are great, but that's not going to be why the reason I want to return to this necessarily. Um something else that I read um read about contextualizing when this film was released. Yeah. As, as I said, there were, there were lots of comparisons to the film Philadelphia. Um, but there were... The, this came out during the, the AIDS pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the, the reactions to this film that I was reading was that in a time that was so dark for members of this community to have a film that represented them not only as proud of who they were and mm-hmm. living their life 
um, it was joyous and not at the, and it, it wasn't funny at their expense, it, but it was joyous and that was so important at that otherwise dark time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, some, again, something that I wouldn't have picked up today um, because I don't have that context for it that feels important to mention. Oh, I liked how... So the Birdcage is the, the name of their club, but I also liked that because of that scene where he had Albert sign the papers um, so that the Birdcage became theirs... So it wasn't just it, it. I I found that to be a very poignant scene where mm-hmm. they sign that their each other shit over to them. Um, and again, it's not this like happy like yay we're together scene. It was like uh, she uh, Albert was just going to kill herself. She was going to the cemetery to die. Mm-hmm. And it was this like very old married couple scene. But then they signed over the birdcage. So then it wasn't just... The name of this film wasn't just the name of the club. It was also, like, came to represent everything that tied the two of them together. Mm -hmm. um, Which I found really beautiful. That one, it took me till the second watching to realize that. The the significance of the title. Mm -hmm. No, I... Yeah, I... I I hadn't put that together myself either. Oh, (laughs) Every, every once in a while, I have a gem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm actually running out of things to say just because I feel like I just keep going back to like, yeah, I really like it. It's so good. It's so <laughs> good. Um, all right, let's see. Um, one, one subtle thing that I, I, I liked quite a bit because like, you really get the idea that they've been do they've been together for a very long time, and it's I feel like it kind of goes without saying, but I, I just in my heart of hearts, I really believe that Armand opened this club. For Albert, you yeah. know, Albert had this desire to perform, and Armand wanted to give him a place to do so. Right. So it's like it's you know it's kind of like something that even though our, the name, club, name of the club was or the club was in Armand's name for that entire time, it's like you know he wanted to give him a stage. That's kind of the way that it always felt. Like it, but didn't it was feel always like, theirs. Yeah, it, it, it always it, it never felt like well, of course Albert's the lead of this the place. You know, uh, like it, it, it felt like. Albert deserves it. Yeah. You know, has been performing for a very long time, and Armand wanted to give him a place to do so. It also brought kind of an an interesting... I think, again, taking into account that this was a mainstream film, mm-hmm. screened in the mid-90s, mm-hmm. to a very large heterosexual population, I think it was interesting how how much their dynamic fell into, like, traditional family dynamic of the of the man being in charge with the property in his name mm-hmm. and and the, the more female character had this, like, hobby that she does, but she's really good at it and he supports it. And while it's been... Con- while that story is being contrasted against this family values conservative storyline, I think it's 
it's really interesting how familiar their old married dynamic mm-hmm. played in a heterosexual sense. Mm-hmm. Um, now, and again, it's, it's still, it's not them being somebody that they're not. I think that was that, the relationship dynamic of those two characters and the things that the film explored in their relationship was a great service to trying to bring in audiences that may not otherwise be receptive. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? No, it makes complete sense. Okay. So um, one thing I wanted to talk to you about. So yeah. at the beginning of the film, when um, Armand and Albert are kind of having their little tiff before Val is introduced... And they're really, you know, setting up this idea that Armand has seen someone else. And, you know, we find out that he's not seen someone else. He is, his son's coming to visit. Yeah. That scene just was super strange to me because I kept thinking, it's like, why doesn't Armand just tell Albert that Val's coming to visit? At first, like, I was like, well, well maybe, maybe Albert and Val don't get along. But they clearly do. Yep. And I was like... I cannot think of a logical reason why Armand doesn't just tell Albert, hey, Val's coming to visit. Other than it's it works better for the script. But, like, the entire time I was watching this, it's like, you know, Albert's getting paranoid, feeling like Armand's seeing someone else, and Armand's being really cagey and weird about this. It's like, man, just communicate with, the, with right. each other. Like, the, I cannot I, – I wanted your perspective on it because the only sure. reason I can think the way that that scene plays out the way it does is just because it's more convenient for the joke that <laughs> – for the reveal that Val is actually his son. Yeah. Um, I had a similar discomfort the first time I watched it, and I did come up with, while it's not very clearly laid out, and it could be totally incorrect, this is what I came up with that made me feel better, and I think is a very real possibility. Mm -hmm. Um, So how I imagine that whole thing playing out is Val contacts Armand, and says, Dad, I have something very serious that I need to talk to you about. Um, let's sit down. Let's, like, I need, I need to have a, a father-son chat with you. Now, based on Armin and Albert's relationship, I could see Armin going, yeah, I'm going to find out what this is before I involve her. Because she hmm. needs to be... Because he always... And, and granted, he's asking her to do very unfair things, mm-hmm. but there's always this moment of like, okay, how am I going to tell her this? Yeah, and I guess that makes sense because I feel like the entire opening before Val is introduced, Robin Williams does seem rather like stressed about the evening. Yeah, yeah. Which does play into the whole idea that, you know, to, to make the audience believe that he's seen someone else. And actually, I I feel like that makes sense. It tracks because it's yep. like his because he does seem like worried and stressed that uh, Albert will find out. And I I can definitely see Val being the way he's written, being like, we need to have this conversation. And right, well, and Armand not too sure how it's going to play out. Yes. He's like, I need. I need to figure out the best way to break this to Albert if it's something bad. Even look at the breakfast scene the following morning. When Armand reveals to Albert uh, what that conversation was the night before, mm-hmm. 
Oh yeah, and Albert, Albert just comes like, in and 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 talking to my. Don't want you to throw your your life away because of a dorm room hussy or something. Do you want to see a master class in pacing? That scene is brilliantly paced. Mm-hmm. Is Val still asleep? Mm-hmm. He must be exhausted. Poor baby. You should have told me he was coming. I'm so ashamed of the way I acted last night. But how could I know? The truth is, you can't stand sharing your son with me. You're always pushing me away. Oh, will you look at this shirt? It's a rag. No matter how many shirts I send that boy, he only wears this one. You look awful. What's wrong? I was getting married. Don't be silly. I got a pork roast for dinner. I wanted to get filet mignons, but they're so expensive. Married? What do you mean, married? You know what I mean. I don't understand. Yes, you do. No. Some girl he met at school. Oh, no. But he's just a baby. He's too young. He'll ruin his life. Listen, we've been through all that, all right? Bottom line is he's getting married no matter what we say, so the less said, the better. Oh, my God. Oh, I woke up feeling so good. Now all of a sudden I feel so funny. Just breathe. Let it go. Breathe. Oh, you've heard. Oh, Valley. Oh, my God. This is such a shock. I'm not saying anything. I promised your father. Mm-mm. But you're only 20, and if you throw yourself away on some dormitory slut, you'll be sorry for the rest of your life. There, enough said. That's all. No more. Subject closed. I love the amount of times that backtracks happen. So um, he says they're getting married, and and Albert goes, that's silly, and says like four more sentences about something unrelated, and then is like, oh, wait a minute, what? Like, you can see the processing happening in real time. It's Mm -hmm. so good. And I think continues to support my theory about why Armand handles it the way that he does. Yeah, and actually Arthur Schmidt, who who edited this scene, obviously the pacing, some of that does come down to Elaine May, and Mike, mm-hmm. who wrote it, and Mike Nichols directing it, but I think yep. a lot of that pacing came from the editor, Arthur Schmidt. And, who, and the actors. I think yep. all, everybody, everyone that you just mentioned, it absolutely gets credit for the pacing on that. Yeah. But, uh, no, our, um, Arthur Schmidt, like I said, is, is uh, a filmmaker. Uh, oh, yes, he is technically a filmmaker. <laughs> is an editor that I, I really enjoy the work of. He's done, I'm just pulling up his, his work now. He, he cut The Coal Miner's Daughter, which we've talked hey. about and both really enjoyed. He cut all the Back to the Future films. Who Framed Roger Rabbit? He did uh, Death Becomes Her, which is also a pacing masterclass. Just watched yeah. it again last night. <laughs> Adam Sandler Values, which is... Is phenom- has phenomenal pacing. He cut pir- the first Pirates of the Caribbean, which is, in my opinion, the best edited of those films. But maybe it's because I'm, I'm, um, uh, I'm a little biased. Yeah. The Bird Cage. So like, yeah, I give, uh, I give. Uh, obviously, everyone involved ha- is part of that. But Arthur but Schmidt made is, sure that he is included as well. Yeah, because no one talks about the editors much. So <laughs> Arthur Schmidt, he's the he's the Schmidt. <laughs> His Schmidt don't stink. Not at all, Arthur Schmidt. That's what I bring to this. I always bring up the weird, like, weird crew members. They're like, you know what? Yeah. This movie had an incredible gaffer. I I live in like the story subtext, and you're like, and this is how it actually was made, Nick. 
Um, and speaking of, going back to the story, uh, one other line that I really loved was when um, the senator and his family were in the car. Um, one, I can't remember if it's uh, uh, his character or Diane Weiss's character, but one of them says, we're on, we're on the way to our salvation. Mm-hmm. Which, in context, like, the reason is that this wedding is going to save this big kerfuffle, which the only immoral character in this entire thing, unless we count Val, which I wouldn't necessarily go immoral on it, it's family dynamic stuff. But no, he never really did, he never learned from his lesson, though, I will say, but continue. Um, the, the most immoral act was that of the president of the um, moral authority oh, yeah, Hold on, group. I got it. It's um, Coalition of Moral Order. Yes, who who died with the prostit- the underaged prostitute. Um, he looked alive to me. <laughs> the, I just found the, um, the hypocrisy of that so delicious. Um, but anyway, uh, so they say they're on their way to their salvation, which you can just chalk up to they think they're going to be saved, but... In the future that where we assume that they become family and more accepting, um, then if we assume that's true, then they really were on the way to their salvation to becoming better people. Yeah. I dig it, Nick. I nice. It. Thank you. Well, is there anything else you wanted to add about the bird? Uh, Check over them notes. Pages of notes. Pages and pages. Pages of notes, listeners. Pages. <laughs> okay, I have two more, two more notes. One of them is just a kind of a reiteration of something you said, but I just want to once again go back to appreciate the scene right before the senator gets there when uh, the three of them are in that poorly lit room. I mean, beautifully lit for film, but it was... it. The lights in the room weren't on, which kind of gave it this almost birdcage-like effect of them all being in cages, or in a cage, all dressed in suits. Emmanuel the two Lubetsky of them. people. What's that? I said Emmanuel Lubetsky people. <laughs> you can light some shit. Yeah. Um, it had such a... Even though there were just three people in this big empty room, it felt so stuffy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the three of them like saying, all right, we're going to do this for you because we love you and we're also uncomfortable. And Nathan Lane's dialogue and his delivery of, uh, the, I just wanted so, so much to help you. And it's like that beautiful moment. And then he says, and you hate me for it. Don't you shows that character's insecurity. So incredibly, I, I, again, so many like masterclass moments in this film, and for me that was another one of taking a minute for the film to breathe before the chaos of the dinner starts to show what a strain it was on everybody. Mm-hmm. I think was really important. Yeah. And the last thing that I'll say is I just really liked how, even though it is like a queer anthem, I liked how this film starting and ending with We Are Family also talks about like what this film is really about and that 
the this actual very normal healthy family of people who really love each other I completely agree, Nick. I, I don't even have anything to add. I'm just loving listening to you talk about this. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> all in all, I really loved this film. Um, I think it's doing a lot of important things, even if it doesn't do it perfectly. And again, I'm not the person who gets to decide that. But any any authentic gay stories are good are good stories that the world needs to see and i can't speak to how authentic it is but it feels right to me um and i'm glad it exists and i'm glad that i was lucky enough to watch it so i think goes without saying this movie is shameless picture show approved i would say so all right yes whenever i get around to whenever i get around to updating the um (laughs) Letterbox, it will have the little heart next. Nice, and I think a pretty good episode for to kick off season six with. And if you're not done with us editing it out, I got two words for you. What's that? Watch Watch movies. The Shameless Picture Show is recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Easton, Maryland, and is hosted and produced by Nick Richards and Michael Byers. Today's episode was edited by Nick Richards. Our opening theme music was written especially for us by The Directionals, with narration by Zach McLean. The end credit music you're enjoying at the moment was generously provided by my friends in the band 10 Speed. The shameless graphic design is masterfully done by Amanda Byers. An extra special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and to our generous sponsors. We are on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Google Play, and Libsyn. You can find links for all these amazing people in the description below.